So as my friend Greg would say, we're not, just, we're not playing Barbies anymore. <laughs> we're kind of jumping into the deep end of the pool on this. And for me, this, this journey started several years ago. I was, was meeting with uh, the therapist that I meet with when I meet with a the therapist, kind of like Dos Equis. I don't always meet with a the therapist. When I do meet with a the therapist, I meet with this one. And uh, I, I, I don't actually remember why I asked the question. Um, and I've been trying to remember the context, and I don't. And of course, I don't remember the exact nature of the way I asked it. But it was something like... What's the difference between uh, the version of me right now and the version of me that could end up in jail someday? Uh, in other words, I think what I was trying to get at is, what, what's the difference between... I, I, actually, I think what I asked was, what's the difference between me and the average person who's sitting in jail right now? And I didn't mean it in this arrogant sense, like, how am I better than them? I just, knowing that my, my own brokenness is pretty close to home, I just wanted to know, what, what's the distinct difference? And especially wanted to know this person's take on it. Uh, and... And how rapidly she answered the question was the initial, initial startling thing about what she said. Because there wasn't much hesitation. It was, and there wasn't, it wasn't one of those kind of like, well, I think probably. It wasn't couched in any way. It was just bam. And she said, self-talk. With that kind of confidence. Oh, it's, it's, it's self-talk. And, and so initially I was surprised um, by how quickly she answered it. But then, of course, there was this self-talk thing. And I'd never even really considered the self-talk thing. And, you know, sometimes you hear stuff and you forget all about it. And you never really know what stuff you're going to hear that you actually think about. Because I don't think in the moment I necessarily was going, okay, I've got a problem. I left there. And that was one of those comments. You know how some stuff just lingers and it sticks with you? And, and it became one of those things similar to when you like start wearing a certain style of shoes or you buy a certain color car and suddenly you see it everywhere you go. You know that thing? I started to notice this, this theme of self-talk in, in books that weren't necessarily about self-talk. And as I was reading the scriptures, I started to go like, whoa, I think that's self-talk. And, and, and as I was having conversations, especially when I was meeting with people and friends and hanging out over lunches and coffees and just randomly, I noticed that there was this, this semi-awareness about how we talk to ourselves. Which, by the way, if you're looking to connect around here, in addition to that whole card, one of the things that that kicks off, if you would like it to, it doesn't have to, is to connect with one of the staff. And we're really grateful because one of the things the council has been really faithful with over the first 10 years is buying into the vision of funding lots of lunches and lots of coffee so that we can connect with all of you and help you get integrated. So let us know if you'd like to do that. But what I noticed is there's this strong theme amongst many people that I was meeting with of this like, huh. So then what I did is, th this is kind of the way I roll where if my job is to plagiarize and curate content, and so I created an Evernote with just the self-talk kind of moniker in it, and then much like a research paper in college or something, I start trying to note all the podcasts and all the books and all the verses and all the studies that I think on some level just relate to this self-talk thing. So I just kind of start dumping it in there with the hope being that at some point it might hit critical mass, and if it does, then boom, I'll just trust that God's borrowed breath will kind of lead us into doing a series, and so we'll actually do a series. Well, that happened in early June, Especially after I, I talked a couple weeks ago about a walk that I had with Dr. Bruner where I asked him about shame and he pointed me to this book that we'll talk a little bit more about in a little bit. Uh, so then we were committed to this series. Well, then this last August, uh, I was talking to my friend Brian Manley, and some of you know Brian. He's, he spoke here before. He's a graphic artist. He used to work at the Crystal Cathedral in California. Random things not known about Brian Manley. And then he grew a beard and he moved to Decatur, Georgia, where he started his own graphic arts company. And he does work for Chick-fil-A and Andy Stanley. Well, I was talking to him on the phone and I was telling him about this death by um, self-talk series that we're going to do. And he goes, Adam, can I please do the art for that series? 
And I was like, well, it's kind of awkward. It's not actually even, it's kind of Marla's job to do those assignments, but I don't think she'd mind because I think, kind of think we're behind. So why don't you send me something and, and we'll just kind of see where it goes. And, you know, in the world of artists, usually it's like poor Marla. She's constantly like, can we get that? Can we get that? Can we get that? So I said that to Brian. And two hours later, I had what basically amounts to this in my inbox. And his comment after it in the text was the best. He's like, I really wanted to do something really heavy and dark, but I decided I had to lighten it up a little bit. <laughs> So that's, that's Brian, like death metal is his favorite type of music. I mean, he's this very unique dude, and we're trying to get him here in January, and maybe you'll get to meet him again if you haven't met him before or if you have. But then it all kind of hit home for me about a week ago. Uh, a little over a week ago, I was meeting with a friend who is the type of friend I don't get to meet with very often, and uh, she's very much older and wiser than me, and yet there's this great respect that I have, and we're sitting down and just kind of talking about a few different things. And at one point, she looked at me and she said, Adam, you, you refer to yourself as a jerk a lot. Where does that come from? And, and, you know, first I'm like, what do you mean where does it come from? It's because I'm a jerk. Like, I'm, and, and I was not being facetious of going, like, I'm well aware that as a husband, as a parent, as a, as a coach, as a, as a leader, as a boss, as a friend, I mean, I, I'm quite capable of being a jerk. And you know when you say something that you think is amusing and it's just like deadpan? It's, so then I went the next round, and I was like, and I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Enneagram, but if not, think personality test kind of stuff. And I was like, I was like I'm an Enneagram one. Like, Enneagram ones are jerks, they're drivers, they're visionaries, they're like, get out of my way or I'll just plow you over. And I kind of went on this long explanation as for how my type A Enneagram one kind of driver starter personality makes for my being a jerk. And she looked at me and she said, Adam, I'm an Enneagram one. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't call myself a jerk all the time. And it was this very rabbinic, it's I think what makes the gospel so amazing and the person of Jesus so attractive, because it wasn't this long lecture. It was just this rabbinic moment where sometimes all it takes is a question and then a person, and this is what I love about spiritual direction in a sense, which is a separate conversation, but it was just this question where it felt like she was really surrendered to if God is in this or not, and it wasn't this kind of agenda she had for me, but it led to this quick conversation of like, oh, wow, this is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because we're getting ready to do this series, and it turns out I still very much have a problem. So I'm in this with you, is my point. Uh, and, and, and here's this therapist who, I, I don't know, thousands of people, thousands of hours over decades, ask her, when do we get off the rails, and, and what's the common denominator? Self-talk. So this morning, I really just have one question for you. We're going to go three weeks in this series. Next week, I really want to start driving home, and if you're dissatisfied by the, by the lack of Bible this morning, good news is next week there'll be too much. So balance by weeks, not by weekends. Uh, next week, I really want to work on the like, okay, so how do I start overriding the script? And, and I think there's some really good examples from science and from the text that we're going to use next week. And then the third week, I just want to ask this question. I actually graduated from a seminary that has this cutting-edge class. That it's, it's a class called Grace and Shame. And they've made some waves in, in, in pushing against the notion that God does shame. And so in the third week, I just want to talk about God and shame and how do we differentiate what God does do with, with, our, with our guilt and what doesn't he do. And when we do wrong, what, how does he speak to us and how doesn't he? But this morning, I just have one agenda, and it's this question. Go ahead, Tim, to that next slide. How do you talk to yourself? Like, and I suppose the secondary question is, are, are you even aware of how you speak to yourself? Like, how, how does that go for you? 
You know, you're, you're standing at the free throw line. And whether that was last week or 40 years ago, you know, game's on the line. You're about to try something new. You're in the batter's box. You're about to play at the recital. You're about to make a presentation. You're about to go into the job interview. You, you just had a tense moment with a, with a friend or a family member or a, a staff member. How do you talk to yourself? And, and again, my, my point this morning is, is, is kind of the how, but it's also like, is there even a built-in awareness that there are thematic elements to the way you speak to yourself? Now, one way to think about this, I feel like I'm on a perch, but there's a reason why I'm... That, so there's, there, there's a guy, and if you decide you want to dig in deeper to this, there's lots of things you can do. You can go see a therapist, you can go see a spiritual director, you can start making conversation with friends. But you, th- this book uh, by a guy named Kurt Thompson, and we didn't buy a pile of them. Oftentimes we do, but frankly, it's a pretty expensive book. You can't get it in paperback from Amazon right now. Uh, he, he, Kurt Thompson, he, he is a psychiatrist, a board-certified cert- psychiatrist, so he doesn't come from the education vein. He's not a theorist like me or others. He's a doctor, and there's a lot of brain science in here that I can't ex- understand, so if you want to understand it, you'll have to read it for yourself. But one of the metaphors he uses is that of a shame attendant. Uh, so I, I, need, I need a volunteer. I don't, always, I don't always do volunteers, but when I do, I do volunteers. Um, <laughs> I need someone who's about my size who would be willing to come stand on the stage with me for about 15 minutes. So I know everybody looks forward to that, but come on up. But you're nothing close to my size, but that's okay. <laughs> like, I was going to give you my suit coat to wear, but you'll blow it out through the chest and the arms. <laughs> that's quite a compliment. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna, you're just going to stand right here for just a second, Nick. This is Nick, everybody. His wife was the one who was singing earlier, who sings her brains out. So here's the way uh, Dr. Thompson talks about this shame attendant deal, is what he says is, is from day zero, like boom, come out of the chute kind of day zero, we all are instantly in- acquainted with what he calls a shame attendant. Now, I was going to give you my black suit coat, but I don't think that'd be safe, and I have a funeral this week, so I don't think we'll do that. Um, <laughs> But his point is this, we often think of it as an attendant, as someone that's really helpful. His point is, the shame attendant uh, accompanies us through all of life, and much like we see in the video, that the attendant's purpose isn't for good, but for evil. In fact, he goes so far, and this might be uncomfortable for you, but Dr. Thompson, who's also a Christ follower, he goes so far as he, his, his medical, scientific, theological conviction that is that the ultimate weapon of intelligent evil, and some of you may not even be comfortable with that idea of intelligent evil, uh, uh, it, it kind of messes with me, but I certainly think it's there in the text. He says the nuclear weapon of intelligent evil is shame, or the self-talk thing. And he says, here's the way it works. So here's what you're going to do the rest of the service. This will be kind of creepy. Um, but, but you're just going to shadow me kind of right here. Uh, yep, everywhere I go, yep, exactly. Because what he says is when you're at the free throw line, you've got a shame attendant. You were born with the shame attendant. When you were in the batter's box, when you're getting ready to interview for that new job, like that, that we go through life with the shame attendant. And here's the bad news is he says there, there isn't a way by which you can just kill the attendant. In fact, what he says is there is no medical procedure that we can just remove the tendency. That this is the epitome of a tension to be managed, not a problem to be solved. 
that the goal here in the self-talk, and again, we're going to do a lot more theological work next week and the week after that, that the goal here is to understand this is a part of what it means to be human in God's created universe is to manage the manifestation of evil that he says that comes in the form of this unhelpful thing that follows us through life and tells us, basically it boils down to two things, that, that you're not good enough, that you're inadequate. I mean, it's, 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 in, in essence, it's that simple. Now, some of you are probably already thinking of Brene Brown, and if so, that's hugely to your credit because she's done phenomenal work. My favorite Brene Brown story, uh, I was years ago I was in Portland visiting a friend who I've known since he was in eighth grade who lives there and uh, works there and has a law degree and all these things, and I said, hey, Alex, have you heard of Brene Brown? And he got this disgusting look on his face, and he goes, Adam, I'm a white guy living in Portland. Of course I've heard of Brene Brown. <laughs> But if you haven't heard of Brene Brown, I don't mean that in a belittling sense. She's done phenomenal work in this realm. But actually, Dr. Thompson uses her as an example to say, Here, here's the danger of the, frankly, like world-changing work. And not many things can say that. Brene Brown can. She's, she is making waves across the entire planet. He said, here's the danger, though, of her work. Is it leads to this assumption that because we have awareness of shame, we don't have a problem with shame. And actually, I think that's what happened to me when I uh, met with that therapist, is there was this like, oh, okay, so now that I'm aware of the fact that, that self-talk can destroy someone, I just assume that I've got it down. In fact, uh, Dr. Thompson points out that in 1988, there's a guy named John Bradshaw. Go ahead to that next slide. Some of you may remember this. He published a book called Healing the Shame That Binds You. That was translated into a PBS series that, again, uh, people who study this stuff, and Dr. Thompson goes, millions of lives were impacted by this conversation of shame. Go, go a little bit further behind, back from that, say a few thousand years, and we're going to dig into this more next week, but there's this ancient people, and we don't entirely understand everything about the context of this, but there's this ancient people trying to figure out life, much like you and I, who, who are trying to figure out God, much like you and I, and listen to this, the, the last sentence of the second chapter of this book. Adam, is, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, to, to me, this is fascinating. Again, we're going to dig into this more next week. But what does it tell us about the pervasive nature of shame that 3,000 years ago, there were some people imagining life when it wasn't broken, and they went first and foremost, the first hint of anything wrong? Shame. What does that tell us about the pervasive nature of this? Uh, here's what it tells me. is I'm not a betting man. I don't necessarily have any deep moral convictions against it. Uh, I did grow up going to the horse races in Billings, and that was a lot of fun, and I wish I could go to those again, especially with Grandpa Bill, because I'd have to lay down in the back of the truck because he didn't want to pay admission for me. <laughs> and then you never went to the first race. You always went, if there was like 12 races, you went to like the sixth race because nobody spends money on a program. You dig through the garbage and you find a program. But you can't do that anymore. Those races like that don't exist anymore. But here's my point is, I'm not a betting man, but it seems pretty safe to say 20, 30 years from now, there'll be another Brene Brown type person, another, uh, another author, another communicator, another thinker, another psychiatrist, another leader of some sort who is making huge waves in culture talking about shame. Why? Because whether God is a part of the conversation or not, it seems like there is this internal sense of, of just this question of what happens, what happens when we become aware of our toxic self-talk? Like what changes if we can get that? Go ahead to that next slide. What changes if we can get that 
in control. Here's part of the way Dr. Thompson talks about it, and there's a whole chapter on the brain science of this, and again, I've read it two or three times, and I'm just like, I studied biology with my wife every day when we were in college. She got an A, I got a C. So I just don't get all the detail of it. But here's my summary of the brain science that he talks about. The problem with shame, or, or the power of shame, is that it requires no vocabulary. In other words, you don't have to have the construct for it to have a dramatic impact on your person. That way before you even learn the language, there's this skill, if you want to call it that, there's this attendant, even though you weren't aware of it, who, who was there to process with you your thoughts, but even more than that, your sensations and your feelings. And it's this, this pattern where we, we look in the mirror and, 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 and we say this, this stuff to ourselves. I work downtown, and one of the things that I've learned over the last 10 years is everybody likes to walk by the storefront and make it look like they're looking into the storefront, but no one's actually looking into the storefront. They're looking at, like, how do I look, right? Like, it's this thing. It's so, it's so funny to watch. We all do it. I do it. It's, it's hilarious. But I get to see it from my office all the time because I'm on the second floor. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're totally looking at their reflection, but they're doing that. It's kind of like, do I have the oh, I'm just rubbing my face on my shoulder, right? That thing that we do. <clears throat> but his point is this. What happens is that shame and, and toxic self-talk, it's, and I'm using those semi-interchangeably, which could get dangerous, but it's, it, it's, it's a feeling it's a sensation before it's ever a thought. And what he says, and this is the brain science side of it as best I can tell, is the sensation and the feeling that we don't even necessarily have words for, those become thoughts. And then the thoughts drive more feelings. And before you know it, you've got yourself a self-perpetuating flywheel that just pushes through you through life via these shameful, shame-attendant kind of monologues and, and narratives, and we're going to get more into that next week as well. Here's another way I think we can think about it is what, what would happen, and, and you may not even believe in God, and that's okay, I'll, I'll come back around to that, but what would happen if, if we learned to speak to ourselves the way Jesus actually suggests we speak to others? I mean, think of it this way. C.S. Lewis said years ago, and this is this haunting thought as a parent, C.S. Lewis said years ago in his book, Four Loves, he said, if, if the average parent spoke to their friends the way they speak to their kids, they wouldn't have any friends. Ugh. I wonder if the same thing can be said about the way the average person speaks to themselves. If the average person spoke to their friends the way they speak to themselves, they wouldn't have any friends. Jesus warned us, I think, about this spirit of condemnation. Listen, listen to Matthew 7. And it's so easy to read past this and use this verse for political things, and it's really not what he's doing. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Now, this is in the context of the greatest sermon ever preached, where Jesus is ultimately talking about, in my opinion here, and that of Dallas Willard from the Divine Conspiracy, is, is the word condemnation. And really what he's saying is, don't use your condemnation to control people. There's this thing we do, and we probably all do it, where we condemn somebody in, in hopes of changing their behavior. He's saying, don't do that. But then notice he actually warns us not to do that to ourselves. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. Which means you'll create a culture around you. If condemnation is the way you do motivation, you'll create a whole culture of condemnation motivation. And with the measure you use, 
it'll be measured to you. And one of the questions theologians have been asking for a long time is, does that measure to you mean just like interpersonally? Or does it also speak to us intrapersonally? See, I, I think many people, myself included, you at times become aware that you're, you're a critical person and sometimes you could be more kind to others. And so we work on doing those things. But I actually wonder if Jesus is saying, no, flip the script a little bit. Start on the inside, because that's really what the divine conspiracy and the Sermon on the Mount's about is... Not, not modification, not behavior modification, but heart transformation. Start with the way you speak to yourself. And if you can get that right, if you can shut down the spirit of condemnation in yourself, that will flow into relationships. In other words, I wonder if, excuse me, we ought to be quite afraid because that person who's hypercritical to everything and everyone around them, it raises this question of, how do you, how do they, how does that person speak to themselves? And how unaware are they of said shame attendance? So here, here's, I, I told you, I wasn't going to give us much to do. Here, here's the challenge that I want to give you this week, and this is where the lifesavers come in. When's the last time uh, you, you carried around a roll of lifesavers in your pocket? It's been a while. Here you go. 1913. Uh, the, the guy invented these, and then he sold the idea to somebody else in 1914, and poor him. <laughs> so so here's, my, here's my invitation to you, is uh, two things. First of all, actually, I think there's three things, is if you want to, and you don't have to, but if you want to take one of these and just carry it around in your pocket, and if you're accustomed to yoga pants, I don't know what you do, but you'll have to figure that out. <laughs> but you carry one of these around in your pocket with, with the first thing being like, what the heck is, why do I have a roll of life save? Oh yeah. And it prompts just this prayer. Jesus, uh, would, you, would you just begin to make me aware of the way I speak to myself? And if you're going like, Adam, okay, I don't even do the God thing. I don't believe in the God thing. That's okay. Because here's the great news. God is secure enough for you to try him on before you buy him. Like, that's, that's, like, God is secure. We don't believe in God and then hope that he works. We try him, and when he works, we believe in him. So, so you don't even have to believe in him to try this little thing out if you're convinced that growing in your self-talk would be a good thing. You carry this around, and when your hand hits the thing, you, you just pray, oh, yeah. God, I, I just, I would love it if you'd make me aware of those instances and those themes and those patterns and those times when my self-talk is lethal. And then here's where it gets kind of fun and a little juvenile, is uh, when, when you actually identify said script, when you catch yourself in the moment of going like, I just did it again, I called myself a jerk. When you do that, then you get to eat a lifesaver. <laughs> so it's this Pavlov's dog kind of thing where <laughs> you, you pray, God make me aware, and then when you begin to do the work, you get to eat a lifesaver and try to replace it, and the next week we'll finish, begin to, well not finish, we'll introduce the work of like, okay, how, how do we, when we become aware enough that we catch ourselves in those moments, how do we actually override the script? We'll work on that a little bit more next week uh, from a theological and scientific standpoint, but it's this week, you with me? So you, you get to carry one of these around, but don't, don't take one if you're not going to do it, because, but there are 300 of them, and you're going, how did you afford to buy 300 rolls of lifesavers? Well, that's what happens when people buy into the vision of a church to such an extent that they go like, here's my tithe, use it however you think it serves people, and if you want to buy lifesavers for 300 people, then knock yourself out. So thank you, those of you who are owners in, in that way. So you got it? God, would you just begin to make me aware of how I speak to myself? And then, 
Hopefully by the end of today, your lifesaver is already gone. Probably not. But by the end of the week, you've kind of began to identify some themes because you've caught some moments, you've ate some lifesavers, and you can either choose to hide when your friends ask you, what's with the lifesavers? Or you can have this moment with them where you get to share a little bit about what you're trying to learn and grow in. So I'd like to pray for you. God, um, thanks, Lord, for scientists and therapists and intelligent people. Thanks for theologians and authors. Thanks for the Bible, God. Uh, And the opportunity we have to begin to grow as healthy people who better bear the image of you. We love you. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online, www.narratechurch.org. We would love to hear from you.